2,500 years ago, the nation of Judah was taken into captivity by the Babylonians. Babylon was the world's dominant empire and system. God's people spent 70 long years far from home in Babylonian captivity. Just as the nation of Judah was taken into captivity 2,500 years ago, we, as God's people today, can find our hearts being taken captive by today's world system. But soon, this Babylon we are in will be gone, just like the one from 2,500 years ago. And if this is where our hearts are, if this is where all our hopes, dreams, plans, identity, and worth is found, then we have a problem. To give your life to the way of the Babylonians will be a catastrophic waste of your life. Our bodies might be in Babylon, but our hearts can be at home. Where is home, you ask? Our true home is not a place, it's a person. We were created to live with God, even better, to live in God, abide in me, dwell in me, live in me. That's what Jesus tells us to do. That was God's plan and purpose all along in creating mankind, for us to dwell with him in a personal, real, living and breathing relationship. And when God is our home and we dwell with him, dwell in him, then and only then will our souls truly find the rest we long for. There really is no place like home. There really is no person like Jesus. But we need to walk in wisdom because with every breath we take, the powers of modern-day Babylon are seeking to lure us into captivity. Well, let me first of all just say, as the kids would say, church is lit today. Amen? Man, it's just so good to see you guys and to hear you. Man, the singing, the worshiping of the Lord today in music. And hey, it just makes a difference when our choir is back, does it not? Thank the Lord for having our choir back today. A gift that was recently given to me that will forever be one of my most treasured possessions is this Bible that I, I brought in here with me today. Uh, one of our dear church members, Mr. Jim Horn, a.k.a. Barney, went home to be with the Lord not too long ago. And about six weeks ago, his wife, Miss Janet, and his daughter, Joy, they, they gave me one of his Bibles. And they left it just as it was when Barney left it behind here, and it's packed full of notes and sticky notes, and I might find a sermon or two of mine in here, and I don't know, I honestly don't know what all is in it, and the reason I don't know what all is in it is when they, and you can tell Barney's got it, sort of held it, held it together with duct tape here, and when they gave it to me, it was wrapped up with this ribbon, and I haven't brought myself yet to open it up, I want to, but I want to savor that moment when I do. Um, I, want to, I want to have a nice tall cup of coffee in my mug and just have about three hours that I can just look at everything and, and turn every page and read every note. And so I'm really excited about that. And I thought about this when I saw this Bible, that old saying that says, a Bible that's falling apart probably belongs to a life that isn't. Well, Ephesians chapter 6 reminds us that we're in a world that is constantly trying to tear us apart. We've talked about the world, the flesh, and the, the devil are all working in synchrony against us. And 
Paul says in Ephesians 6, we're in this spiritual warfare. And this is what he says in verse 13. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will still be standing firm. Stand your ground. Putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. I want you to see that with the Word of God, we have a weapon with which we can fight in these spiritual battles that we find ourselves in. The Word of God is our weapon that we use to fight the darkness on the outside of us as well as the darkness that still yet resides on the inside of us. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Besides prayer, the only thing that we know of that God has given us that serves as a weapon in the spiritual battles that you and I are facing every single moment of every single day is the Word of God. And Jesus modeled for us the truth that the Word of God is the offensive weapon, and He modeled for us in His earthly ministry how to use it. When He's out in the wilderness for 40 days and Satan comes out to Him at the end of that time and He tempts Him three times. And do you remember what Jesus' opening statement was each and every single time? It is written... And then he would quote God's word to Satan. It is written. And then he would quote the word back to Satan. It is written. And then he would quote the word back to Satan. Can I ask you a question this morning? Can you do that? When the spiritual attacks come into your life, when it's your children, your grandchildren, your family, that the enemy has set the crosshairs on, Can you take up the sword, which is the Word of God? Can you fight? Can you fight successfully? Do you know the Word well enough to use it? If you do, do you know how to use it? I'm just asking you right now, how well do you really know your Bible? Can you just think about that for just a moment? How well do you really know your Bible? A lot of Christians don't really know their Bible very well at all. And maybe that's because you're a relatively new Christian. You may have only been a Christ follower for a few months, maybe. Well, it's obvious then why you don't know the Bible as well as you want to yet. You're just starting out in your faith journey. And that's why we do life together and church together. That's why we have preaching. And that's why we have Bible study groups. And by the way, if you're in a Bible study group that's not teaching God's Word, get another Bible study group. Your group that gives you warm fuzzies and kumbaya moments isn't going to help you on the day that you need to fight against spiritual darkness. We need to know the Word and to be in the Word. If, I fear, though, that there's a lot of people that have been believers for some length of time and who still don't know God's Word well. And maybe even what they do know, they don't really know how to use it in their life especially when the spiritual battles begin to rage. And at some point, I think we got to be 
big boys and girls, and maybe that day's today, and be honest and admit, that's on me. It, it's not my preacher's fault. It's not my Sunday school teacher's fault. It's not my parents' fault. It's, it's on me. We, we need to admit today that the reason a lot of us today are still biblically illiterate is just our fault. We've allowed ourselves, here's what's happened, we've allowed ourselves to become apathetic toward this book. It doesn't really concern us a whole lot. We're just really not that interested in it. We don't, we don't find it that compelling. We say that we don't have time for that, but I think we all know we do because we seem to have all kinds of time for all sorts of other things. We need to be aware today that this apathy that leads to biblical illiteracy is one of the primary captors that takes Christians' hearts into captivity. It's one of the primary things that takes us away from really knowing God, from dwelling in Him and abiding in Him. As Moses said, to in Him we live and move and have our very being. And, and we need to recognize that today so that we won't remain captives and so that instead we will turn the battle on to the captors and take the battle to them that we will have the Word of God and we'll know it and we'll know how to use it. So let's try to better understand our problem here today. And Here's what I want you to write down. First sentence on those notes that are out there in the hall. Maybe you picked them up. If you didn't, use your phone or write on somebody's neck or something. But write this down. When I am apathetic, when I'm apathetic toward the Bible... I will increasingly become, number one, illiterate in regards to foundations in the Bible. When I'm apathetic, I will increasingly become more illiterate in regards to foundations in the Bible. And when I say foundations in the Bible, I'm talking about the people, the places, the events, the stories that are in the Bible. How well do you know those? There are over 3,200 different people named in the Bible. And if you've been a Christian for at least a year, you should know every one of those. I'm just kidding. You should know at least 2,000 of those. I'm still just kidding. The only way you're going to know 2,000 of those or all 3,200 of those, you're going to have to have some type of incredibly... Uh, amazing intellectual gift the Lord's given you. I don't know anybody that can do that. But, but I bet you know the, the map of the Holy Land like James Spann knows the state of Alabama, don't you? You don't? Obviously, when we talk about being literate in terms of the foundations of the Bible, we're not talking about knowing every person in the Bible. We're not talking about knowing every place in the Bible we're not talking about knowing every event, every story that's in the Bible. In fact, I'll just be honest with you, I need to be doing a whole lot more Bible work in my own life, but I leak a lot. I do. I just don't remember. Just ask Shannon. It, today is her birthday, and I do remember that. Oh, I remember that. But outside of that, you know, it's kind of up for grabs what I'm going to remember. And so i got to spend more time in the Word than I do. I know that. 
And I want to challenge you to do the same thing. We desperately need to spend more time in God's Word. But we're not going to know all the people. We're not going to know all the events. We're not going to know all the places, all the stories. We're not going to be able to retain all of that. But when I'm talking about we want to know the foundations, we want to know key people, key events, key places, key stories. One of the ways that I've tried to help you in knowing the the foundations of the Bible is for a little over three years now, I've been doing this thing that we call the Bible timeline. Y'all remember that? We don't get to do it much anymore. I don't get to bring the kids up with all these services we have. We're compressed in our time, and I I wish we got to do it because this is important because here's the deal. I really never did that for the kids. You adults learn better when you think I'm talking to your kids. All right, so let's see if we still remember the timelines. We haven't done it in a while. Everybody, everybody's a kid today, all right? Brandon, you're a kid today. Everybody's a kid today. Ready? Huh? No, I start here. Well, I'm left to right up here, so y'all are this way, and I'm this way. I've already practiced it in my head, Liz, this way, so you're testing the, the limitations of the brain I've already confessed about, all right? In the beginning, God created how many people? Two. What were their names? Adam and Eve. Did they obey or disobey? They disobeyed God, and what does the Bible call that? Sin. And even though they sinned, God stepped into the garden, and he made them a promise. He promised to send a Savior, but sin just got worse. So God sent a flood. He destroyed the whole world except one man by the name of Noah. The world begins to repopulate. They start to build the Tower of Babel, but God confused their languages. That was the beginning of the nations of the earth. And out of all those nations, God chose one man to form a new nation. His name is Abraham, and he promised Abraham three things, lots of children, lots of land, and a blessing to the nations of the earth. And Abraham had a son by the name of Isaac, and Isaac had a son by the name of Jacob, and Jacob had a son by the name of Joseph, and Joseph ended up living in Egypt, and the Pharaoh turned all of God's people into slaves, but God raised up a man to bring them out of slavery. His name is Moses. Did Moses take them to the promised land? No, his protege, Joshua, took them to the promised land. But even when they got into the promised land, their hearts were still wicked, and they go through a series or a cycle of judges until they cry out to God, we don't want any more judges, we want a king. So they got King Saul, they got King David, they got King Solomon, and then the kingdom split. And what happened to the northern kingdom? They got perished under the Assyrians, right? They're gone. What happened to the southern kingdom? They got taken into captivity to the Babylonians. They were there for how many years? Seventy years. Then God keeps his word as he always does. He sets them free. He brings them back to Jerusalem. They rebuild the city. They rebuild the temple. And then for about 400 years, God gets really, really quiet until he speaks to a young Jewish girl by the name of Mary. And he says, Mary, you're going to have a baby and you're going to name him Jesus. And Jesus lived a what kind of life? Perfect and sinless life. He died on the He rose from the, he ascended into, and he sent his Holy Spirit to this earth. And that's the beginning of the church. That's where we come into the story. And for the last 2,000 years, we've been doing this thing he gave. It's called the Great Commission, taking the gospel to all the nations of the earth. At any moment, Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And we are going to live with him forever forever. That's just one little tool by which we're trying to learn some of the foundations of the Bible. Now listen, if you've listened, I've done that in Sunday morning worship about 110 times. 110 weeks. 
That's about 220-something times, all right? If you've heard it all of those times and you still don't know it, I love you enough to tell you you're probably apathetic toward the Bible. You're not, you're not letting it soak. You're not going back and rehearsing that and thinking through that. And so I want you to be aware of that. Now, you might be sitting here going, no, I know that. And, and, I, and you may be the person that at the Sunday school party, you're hoping somebody brings Bible trivia because that's your flex. Because you know probably 1,800 of the people in the Bible. You've got all the places figured out. You know the stories. You know the events. And you cannot wait to wipe the floor with everybody in Bible trivia because you have nailed down the foundations. Well, you might be literate in the foundations, but the second thing we need to look at is because of apathy, we might be illiterate in regards to, write this down, situations in the Bible. Not just the foundations of the Bible, but situations in the Bible. Here's what I mean. When you read a verse, do you know what it means around that verse? Do you know the context of that verse? Do you know the situation in the paragraph? Do you know the situation in the chapter? Do you know the situation of the book? Who's the human author of that book? Who, who is the human audience of that book? Do you understand where it fits into the rest of the situation of the Bible? Do you understand all that? Today, we're dealing with a, a meme Christianity, M-E-M-E. You know what that is, right? It's these little pictures that people have, and they put sayings on them, and they put them out on social media, they go all over the place and we, we pick out a little verse and it makes us feel good and we put that on and we say, well, I read the Bible today and really that's nothing new. In the 80s, it was bumper sticker Christianity and in the 90s, it was coffee mug Christianity. Now with technology, it's meme Christianity. That's what we have and we like to just read that little verse but usually we do that and we do it and we're still illiterate to what's around the verse. What's the situation around the verse? What's it saying in the paragraph? What's going on in that chapter? What's going on in that book? And when you lift a verse, you isolate one verse. And you separate it from the situation that it's in with everything else. You can twist that then to make it say whatever it is that you want it to say. I'll give you an example. A lot of people's favorite verse is Matthew chapter 7. I forget the verse of it exactly. It says, where Jesus says, do not judge lest you be judged. I mean, people, like they pull that out. Oh, you're supposed to judge. Jesus said, don't judge. But you're pulling that one sentence out and twisting the meaning of it. What is the situation of that line in the rest of the verse, in the rest of the paragraph, in the rest of the chapter, in the book of Matthew, within the teachings of Jesus, within the New Testament of Scripture, within the whole canon of Scripture? Better understand what that's about. Here's another example. Today's Super Bowl, right? And so the, the football players, they're in their locker rooms, and they got the eye black, and it says Philippians 4.13. How many know what Philippians 4.13 says? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. We yank that little line out, and we make it apply to whatever we want to apply it to. I'm going to get this job. I'm going to win the Super Bowl. I'm going to Disney World because I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Know the situation of it. Within the verse, within the paragraph, within the chapter, within the book, what it is is the Apostle Paul is writing that from a prison, and he's saying, I have learned because of Jesus to be content no matter the situation I am in. And so no matter how difficult it may be 
to have joy of the Lord in my heart, no matter how difficult it may be to have contentment, I can. I can do that because of Jesus. It's not about winning a Super Bowl. It's about finding contentment in Christ in the worst circumstances of life. So ironically, when you think about it tonight, when you see those football players from Philippians 4.13, it sort of implies biblically they're prepared to be content if they lose. Right? That's kind of, so you sort of really need to rethink that one. Now look, you might be sitting here and you might be very literate in the foundations of the Bible. You might be sitting here and you might even be very literate in the situations of the Bible. You know how to exegete a verse, you know how to study it, you know how to get all the situations around it, but you might be, number three, write this down, illiterate in regards to the connections in the Bible, the connections in the Bible. I'm always amazed at people that have gone to church all their life, and they simply think the Bible is this big collection of a bunch of different stories. Just standalone stories. And a part of the reason they think that's because that's the way the church has preached it. That's the way it's been taught in Sunday school. And so we've never made the connections that these aren't standalone stories. No, the Bible is one single freight train, one unstoppable locomotive that is headed to one direction, one destination, and that is to reveal that Yahweh of the Old Testament, Jesus of the New Testament, is King of all kings and Lord of all lords to the praise and the honor of His glory. That's the whole purpose. And every car in the train is connected together for that purpose. All the seats within the individual cars are all connected together for that purpose. The Bible is one story, and it has one message, and we call that the gospel. It's simply the story of creation and the fall into sin, God's redemptive plan, and the restoration of all things. That's it. It's one story. That's how it's all connected. Creation, fall, that's Genesis 1, 2, 3. From there to Revelation 20 is the story of redemption. And then 21 and 22 of Revelation is the restoration of all things. That's it. It's one big story. All 3,000 plus characters are aimed at that. Every, every story, every event, every word, every sentence, every chapter, everything in this book is aimed at that destination, the revealing of Jesus Christ as King of Kings. And Lord of Lords, telling that story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And I think that's the goal, to get that. Listen, wiping the floor with your Sunday school class and Bible trivia, that is not the goal. Being the best exegeter of Scripture, knowing the Greek and the Hebrew and how to diagram it all and lay it all out there and get all the context broken down, that's not necessarily the goal either. Foundations and situations are great tools, but if we don't apply that to the overall connections, the overall story, the overall purpose of the Bible, then we've missed everything. But you're never going to be able to do any of that. You're never going to know the foundations as long as you're apathetic toward God's Word. And if you don't know the foundations, you're not going to be able to know the, understand the situations as long as you're apathetic toward God's Word. And then you're never going to be able to make the beautiful connection, the redemptive thread of God's plan all through Scripture if you remain apathetic toward the Bible. And listen, 
If you remain apathetic toward the Bible, I promise you then as a child of God, you're going to live out your days in captivity. Always trying to just get a little closer to God, but never quite getting to where you're abiding in Him, dwelling in Him. Or as Moses said, in Him you live and you move and you have your very being. Listen, straight talk. When it comes to this book, you can't be passive. You've got to put in the time. You've got to put in the effort. You've got to put the work in. And listen, I know it seems overwhelming sometimes. Here's good news. If you're a child of God, God's going to help you understand it. His Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And some of you are going, his Holy Spirit's inside of me, but he's never helped me understand it. He will. That's called the doctrine of illumination. But here's the key. He will not illuminate what we don't dedicate. The doctrine of illumination is not a magical thing that the Holy Spirit does and goes, poof, be ye literate. No. The Holy Spirit comes alongside our humility, our teachability. Our hunger and our thirst to know God and to know Him in the power of His resurrection. And the Bible says He is a rewarder of those who what? Who diligently seek Him. You put forth the effort. You put forth the time and the Holy Spirit is going to help you understand. You know why the Holy Spirit wants you to understand? You know why He's going to help you to understand? Because you know what the Holy Spirit loves to do? Number one job, number one pleasure of the Holy Spirit is to exalt Jesus. And the Holy Spirit desires to give you understanding of the Word of God because the Word of God is where you come to know the God of the Word. And His name is Yahweh. His name is Jesus. And the Holy Spirit wants nothing more than for you to encounter Jesus day after day after day after day through this perfect Word of God. So with the help of God, you can find victory over this chapter called biblical illiteracy. God will break you free from being apathetic toward God's word. And you'll begin to then see not only the foundation, but the situations and the connections. And it's all going to begin to come alive to you in your walk with Christ. But Then that's going to lead you to the next place. It's maybe the greatest Challenge And it's this question, will I now submit to the authority of God's word over my life? Now that the Holy Spirit is teaching me and guiding me, is this just going to stay here? Or is it going to go to my heart, into my feet, into my life? Will I yield and surrender and submit myself beneath the authority of of God's word. I think this is probably the greatest concern about being apathetic toward the scripture. When I'm apathetic toward the Bible, I will increasingly become, write this down, insubordinate, not just illiterate. But once you're literate, if you're still apathetic about the Bible, you will become insubordinate in regards to submission to the Bible. Here's what I mean. If there's anything worse than a person who's been a believer for a long time not knowing the Bible, 
It's a believer that knows the Bible and doesn't live the Bible. James says, don't just be hearers, but be doers also. And if the pattern of your life is all you do is hear and you don't obey, you don't do, the whole point of James writing that is to say you need to check your salvation because you might not know Christ as Savior and Lord. This is why James says your faith without works is dead. If you have faith to believe what God's Word says, but that faith doesn't activate and live it out and submit and surrender to the Word of God, and that's the pattern of your life, Brother James would say, I don't think you know Jesus. We want to make sure that we know Jesus. And I need to be clear here as it relates to God's Word. This church, this will be, this month is our next weekend. In fact, it will be our 78th birthday. From day one, this church has believed in God's word. I believe in God's word. And in the days that you and I are living in, it's going to become more important than ever that occasionally I just stand here and remind us of some doctrinal truths that we believe. We need to know it. We need to know what we believe. We need to know know why we believe it. We need to stand on it. Here's what we believe. We believe that God's word is inspired by God. That word inspired means breathed out of the very lungs of God. Let me be clear. There is no other book on the planet that is inspired by God. Sometimes you'll hear somebody say, "I, I was inspired to write this song. They're not talking about what we're talking about. They're talking about I had a warm feeling and it kind of came to me. When we're talking about the Bible being inspired, it's not a warm feeling. It is a divine fact that it has come out of the very lungs of God. There's no other piece of literature, no other work of art, nothing else under the sun except creation itself that you can say that about. Secondly, we believe that God's word is infallible. What that means is we believe the word of God will never, ever fail. His prophecies will come to pass. His promises will be fulfilled, will be true every single time. The third thing we believe about God's word is that it is inerrant. That means it is without error. We we believe that it is true, that it is accurate. I know science continues to say lots of things, but science for years has loved to say, well, this is where the Bible is is inaccurate. Here's an error in the Bible. Here's something wrong. We've disproved this about the Bible. We're still sitting here 2,000 years later, and the Bible just keeps proving itself again and again and again. You know why? Because it is perfect. It's out of the lungs of God. It's inspired. It's infallible. It's inerrant. And fourthly, we believe it's our final authority. And this is so important that I say this. You've got to make a decision real fast if you haven't already. By whose authority are you going to live your life? If you're a Christian, you have one final authority over your life, and that is the Word of God. It alone guides, controls, dictates, governs the life of a believer. Our lives must be lived according to 
to God's word. Anything less than that is insubordination to the word of God and to the God of the word. No matter how inconvenient it may be to submit to God's word, you just stick that pinky toe out from under the umbrella of the authority of God's word and you are insubordinate against the holy God. And you are insubordinate against his holy word. No man, I don't have the final authority over you. I do have authority over you as your pastor, as your shepherd that God's word has given me. But the minute I cease to be living under the authority of God's word, you're no longer bound to be under my authority. His word is our final authority. In matters of government, they have authority and we pray for them. But when to obey the government means that we must disobey God, the disciples said it and I still believe it, we must obey God rather than man. He is our final, His word is our final final authority not your personal hunch not your gut instinct not what your heart's saying what does the word of God say your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path now to help us better understand what I mean by the authority of God's word I'm going to take you on a little deep dive here I'm going to read a statement out of the master seminary Dr. Richard Mayhew just listen to this all right but we need this some of you are thinking this is I don't know what this means with my life it's it means everything with your life especially Especially in these days that we're living in. As we talk about the authority of God's word, here's what Dr. Mayhew says. It is not a derived authority bestowed by humans. Rather, it is the original authority of God. In other words, this is not an authority that people got together, wrote it down, made it up, and just passed it down. Now it's tradition. Well, our granddaddies did it and our great granddaddies did it so we're going to live the same way no it is not that this is original authority that has come from the very throne room of god almighty secondly this authority it does not change with the times the culture the nation or the ethnic background rather it is the unalterable authority of god it does not matter who you are it does not matter where you are it does not matter what year you're living in it does not matter the circumstances that are going on around you nobody but nobody gets a pass from living beneath the authority of god's word number 3 it's not one authority among many possible spiritual authorities. Rather, it is the exclusive spiritual authority of God. We as Baptists didn't go, well, here's all the holy books. We picked this one. No, this is the holy book. The Quran is not a holy book. The Book of Mormon is not a holy book. There is no other book from Almighty God but this one that we have before us here. Number four, it's not an authority that can be successfully challenged or rightfully overthrown. Rather, it is the permanent authority of God. This word is going to stand forever. It will never be outdated. It's never going to be irrelevant. You can ban it. You can burn it. You can bury it. You can try to legislate it away. But you will not stop. It will not be defeated. Number five. It is not a relativistic or subordinate authority. Rather, it is the ultimate authority of God. In other words, it's not relativistic. It's not conditional. Well, if all these things kind of line up, then it makes sense. Then we'll do it. But if they don't, then it's okay if you just sort of modify. No, no, no. There is no modify. It's trust in the Lord with all your heart. And don't modify. Don't lean on your own understanding. 
Number six, it's not merely a suggestive authority. Rather, it is the obligatory authority of God. This is not a suggested way to live. This is not words of advice. This is not a self-help book. This is thus saith the Lord. We're obligated as the people of God. We say that word in our covenant. We're obligated now to live a new and holy life. You know why we're obligated? Because the authoritative word of God says so. Number seven, it is not a benign or passive, maybe is a better word to help you understand. It's not a benign authority in its outcomes. Rather, it is the consequential authority of God. In other words, what you do with this book has consequences. There is no gray area. There is no option C. It is obey or disobey, period. Blessed is the one who walks according to the counsel of this word. The ungodly are not so. They're like the chaff that's blown away in the wind. This book bears consequences. This is why this is called the Holy Bible. There is no other Bible like it. There's no other book like it. There's nothing else like it. It's holy. It's unique. It's one of a kind. It has no peer. It has no rival. It's in a class all by itself. Listen to what one unknown author said. I love this. This book contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrine is holy. Its precepts are binding. Its histories are true. And its decisions are immutable or unchanging. Read it to be wise. Believe it to be saved. And practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It's the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here, heaven is open and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject. Our good is designed and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, health to the soul, and a river of pleasure. It's given to you here in this life, will be opened at the judgment, and is established forever. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor, and condemn all who trifle with its contents. And I'm asking you today, as of late, have you been apathetic about the Word of God? Some questions you may want to consider. And ask yourself, can you honestly say that you love spending time in God's Word? And how often does that happen in your life? Secondly, does the Holy Spirit often bring to your mind phrases, sentences, or entire verses that you have invested time with? If you tomorrow were suddenly deprived of the ability to spend time in God's Word, how deeply would that bother you? Or would it just seem like every other day? What informs your view of the world and determines how you make choices and decisions? Is it the Bible? Or is it something else? Is there currently an area of your life that you're resisting submitting beneath the authority of God's word? Listen, we can't snap this morning and know everything but we can kneel and submit to what we do know we can at least do that what are you refusing to submit what are you why are you refusing to kneel before the Lord and the authority of his perfect word I can tell you why you don't trust Jesus. 
Oh, pastor, I do. I trusted Jesus when I was eight years old at Bible school. No, no, I'm not talking about that. You don't trust him now. You don't trust him enough to place yourself under the authority of his word. You trust you more. So your problem is you're not only apathetic toward the word of God, you are apathetic toward Jesus. You don't trust him enough to take him at his word. Is it going to be hard? Yes. It should be. That makes us more dependent on the Lord. You should not expect submitting to the word of God and living according to the word of God to be easy. That's why God didn't give us a holy pep talk. He gave us the Holy Spirit. We're not trusting Jesus. We're apathetic. God's word and the God of the word. We're not just apathetic. To the God of the word, but we're apathetic to the God in flesh. And that's why today some of you spend more time in captivity than you do living in, abiding in, and dwelling in Christ. And I've been praying for people to come back to church. There's a lot of people that they know it's time. But I'm telling you what, if you're here and this is all you're doing, you're going to be spending more time in captivity than not. Trust Him. Pursue Him. Chase after Him. He's already chasing after you. And listen, you may be in captivity today. In fact, a lot of us probably are. You know why? Because you're apathetic toward Jesus. Here's good news. There's not ever been one beat of your heart that He's been apathetic toward you, nor is He apathetic toward you today, this morning, in this moment. He's coming to your rescue if you want to be rescued. He's coming to reveal himself to you if you want him to reveal himself to you. He's coming to take you back home in him, to know him, the power of his resurrection, to dwell in him if you want to dwell in him. But it's your choice. So God, we bow before you today. One, grateful that you've given us this God-breathed book and you've put it so readily available in all of our lives. No generation before us has ever had so much Bible so readily accessible. I'm quite sure that'll be part of the standard by which our generation will be judged by what we've done with it. God, I pray that where there's apathy today, you would obliterate it by your grace. And in its place, there would be passion for you, Jesus. 
passion for your word because we know the treasure that we find in your word is you. And we desperately need you, Jesus. We put our trust in ourselves. We put our trust in what others say. Holy Spirit, would you lead us to place all of our trust in Jesus, through his word, to pursue knowing it better that we might live fully in submission to it for your glory and the only way we can have joy in Jesus' name. I want to invite you to stand and let's worship the Lord. Be obedient, respond. You get to decide in the next three minutes, am I walking out the same? Or am I going to spend some time with Jesus here and handle some business? That's your choice to make. You can worship. You can sit. You can pray. You can come to the altar. You can pray. Whatever you need to do. But do not waste this moment.